Hey, I will say this. It was fun. 90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes, man. Because they absolutely fought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Matumbo embraces the ball and then unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! Welcome everyone to the 90s Basketball Show. My name is Brian Swain, and I am five foot eight, which makes me just a hair taller than my guest on this episode. And that's pretty much where our similarities end. While I only dreamed of playing in the NBA, Keith Mr. Jennings did it, and did it very well for three seasons with the Golden State Warriors from 1992 to 1995. At just five foot seven, he's one of the shortest players in NBA history. And it's the success of players like him that allowed kids like myself to believe there was a place for us sub-six-footers in this game built for Giants. I had a chance recently to chat with the one and only Mr. Jennings while he was at his home in North Carolina to look back on his basketball journey, find out what he's up to today. And of course, we had to talk a lot about little dudes doing big things. Keith Jennings, but everybody calls him Mr. He's only 5'7". Mr. Jennings. Keith, how you doing? I'm doing good, Brian. Thank you for having me on, man. Uh, just trying to get through this crisis we're dealing with. But other than that, you know, still loving the game. What's the uh, the situation like health-wise for the, the part of the country you're living in? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's the COVID rate has spiked a little bit in our, in our, mostly in our state. But uh, in the little spot, the, in the little town I'm in, it's, it's not as bad, but uh, you know, the way it's going, it just seems like it's a matter of time unless something, unless a vaccine or something else comes about that shuts it down. But, yeah, just just trying to stay out the way and, you know, keeping in touch with my team and making sure they're good and family and friends. And, you know, hopefully we'll get, all get through this together. No doubt. No doubt. Well, you know, i got to start off with the first question I have for you, and I know you've probably been asked this many, many times <laughs> in your life, but i got to get the story. Where does the nickname Mister come from? Well, that that came from my dad uh, when I was playing little league football. My my first year when I was like seven years old. Uh, you know, we had our little football draft, and I was one of the better players. And you know, next thing you know, we out there just playing a little tackle football, and it was hard for people to tackle me back in those days. And you know, we had been out there for a few hours, and my dad was ready to go, and. And, you know, he yelled, Keith, come on, let's go. And I could hear him, but, you know, just being with my new friends and everything, being the man, I kind of ignored him. And he yelled, Keith, again, and I ignored him again. And the next thing you know, I hear this big booming, Mr. Jennings, get over here. And some of my the new guys were like, Mr., he calls you Mr.? And I was like, yeah, yeah, he calls me Mr. And that that's kind of, you know, how everybody in my hometown knows me. You know, I get called Mr. more than Keith for sure. <laughs> It's always kind of it's cool to hear the background from nicknames like this. It's it's just these kind of these stories that are for you never would expect. Just kind of something kind of innocent like that would turn into the handle that sticks for you for the rest of your life. I know, right? I know. It's you know definitely a, a household name in this area, and 
you know, in, in, in college at East Tennessee State, you know, most everyone calls me Mr. And, you know, I, but I answer to both, you know, and now I answer the coach. So it's all good. Well, so obviously football was something you pursued as a kid. When did you first get into basketball and when did it become the, the sport that you really decided to put your heart into? Well, you know, we had an athletic family, so all the sports were played uh, by the family. You know, we would be outside playing basketball, football, softball, everything. And um, I would say basketball-wise, I guess I started dreaming to play in the NBA when I was, you know, maybe fifth or sixth grade. And uh, I had an older brother who's three years older than me, and I have a younger brother that's three years younger. So by the time we started getting in that age age range of 11 and 12, you know, I, I started becoming pretty good in the game. And, you know, I, you know, basketball is something I started concentrating on a whole lot more. And, you know, next thing you know, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, dream big. And, of course, for a five seven point guard, believing that he can play in the NBA, that was definitely a big dream. But, you know, the things that happened and the work I had to put into it to make that dream come true and definitely some good luck along the way and the blessings from the Lord above. You know, I'm I'm one to testify that dreams do come true. You played your college ball at uh, Eastern Tennessee State. How did you get yourself a scholarship to go there? Well, you know, I wasn't heavily recruited out of high school. And, um, you know, one of my cousins, her name is Sharon Allen, she was at East Tennessee State, and she really thought I could become a good player and got the coaches from East Tennessee State to come look at me and, you know, each time they came to see me, I always, uh, you know, I had I seemed to have a really good game. And next thing you know, they flew me in for a visit, and it was my only scholarship offer. And, you know, I, I, I knew I had to accept it. So it, it kind of went that route, and then, you know, the the rest is history. I imagine a, a large part of the, the fact that you didn't, you weren't heavily recruited probably had to do with people looking at your height. What do you think made them look past that and, and saw what you could be? Well, you know, from what the coaches have told me, you know, they they loved the fact that, you know, our family was close. So they they saw the love that my family had for me and, you know, and the way that, the, that our high school really treated me. They, they saw I was somewhat of a humble person considering all the accolades that I was racking up in high school. And, um, you know, they, they were coming off a probation year, so they were looking for new players to turn the program around and, you know, I was a shooting guard in high school, but I knew I would be a point guard in college. And, you know, from from the time they offered me the scholarship till I got on campus, you know, they, they gave me the opportunity to run the show. And, you know, uh, I came in with a bunch of other great guys. And, you know, we ended up winning quite a few championships. And some of us, you know, I, may, I was the only one to make it to the NBA, but a lot of us, a lot of the other guys ended up playing overseas. So, you know, it was just a, you know, a great time period at East Tennessee State. Yeah, you mentioned you won some, some championships there, too. And you also won, I think, one of the uh, the great awards that has ever been given out in basketball. They don't have an award out anymore. The Francis Palmer Naismith Award uh, given out to the, the college senior under six feet in 1991. What did it mean to you to receive that award? Uh, you know, it it, it, it made me really appreciate the hard work that I put in. And, you know, like you say, the small guys got to stick together. You know, I know basketball is a tall person's sport, or at least they have the advantage just for being taller. But, you know, that award, 
really lets you know that some of the small guys can really play also. And it was just something that made me feel really good. And to be recognized as the best player in the country was just like, um, you know, I never played the game for the accolades of it, but when it happens at the end of the season and then, you know, when you retire and you look back on your career, you know, I definitely have quite a few things I can look back on and smile about. Some pretty uh, impressive names that you share on that trophy, too. I mean, Tim Hardaway won it just a couple years before you. A couple years before that, it was Muncie yeah. Bones. I mean, these are guys that went on and, and self course, yourself included, went on and did things. Showed, showed that, yeah, there, you know, there is a place in this game for someone, even if you're not six foot tall. Exactly. You know, I mean, you just, you just can't have any weaknesses at our size. And that's one thing I try to deprive my game on. You know, I didn't want to. I didn't want to use my height as some because everybody always said I was too small to play in the NBA or to play college basketball. And you know, I just never listened to the naysayers. The shooting and the passing and the defense, all of that became very important. So now, obviously, here you you win this award in '91. You're getting some national recognition. You you also had a couple of uh, runs in the NCAA tournament. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I played in three of those, but I never got out of the first round. But the year after I graduated, you know, they upset Arizona in the first round and lost to the Fab Five in the second round. So, and you know, East Tennessee State, we built a tradition there. And, you know, it, it was something that the city was very, very happy to support. Were you sensing there was a lot of interest around you heading into the 1991 NBA draft? Like, what were your expectations on that day? Were you thinking that someone was going to take a shot at you? I mean, I was. I was thinking that because, you know, I was a second-team All-American. Uh, I led the nation in assists, and I and I shot like 59% from the three that year. So I had a lot of good things that were going for me, but, you know, things didn't work out, and I ended up trying out with the Indiana Pacers, and I got cut which was the first time ever getting cut playing the game of basketball. But that's when I really realized, you know, that the NBA was a whole nother level from college. And, you know, the thing was, I never had anyone to come back and tell me what the difference was. And once you gain that experience, then you kind of know what to expect. And when the Warriors gave me an opportunity, I, I approached it totally different than I did when the Indiana Pacers gave me that opportunity and, you know, Thank God I made it with the Warriors. Yeah, you broke in with the Warriors in 1992. Do you remember when you found out when you first made the team? Yes. I mean, it was like, oh, man, just remembering that right now, it was. It came down, you know, like I said, when I was going through my NBA experience at the beginning of it anyway, I had no one tell me what to expect. So when I when I made it, you know, it was levels to it and, when I made it to the veterans camp and then I started playing in the preseason games and I was playing pretty good and coach Nelson and coach Popovich really liked the way I could shoot the ball because that was something nobody really understood how good of a shooter I was. And, you know, it came down to um, the last, after we had played our last preseason game and I can remember being in the locker room the next day and Tim Hardaway was in the locker room also. And, you know, he and we've become pretty cool over this little time. Like you said, we we talked about best players in the country under six feet, and you know, Tim had that killer crossover, so he always had a lot of respect from from me. And um, I rem remember him asking me, "Did I make it?" And I was like, "I don't know." And he walked over to the phone in the locker room, and 
at the time, I'm like, okay, this could be one of these tricks that the veterans play on the rookies. And so I was just not, you know, paying attention to him, but not. And he picks up the phone and he calls somebody and he's like, yeah, this is Tim. That uh, Keith Jennings make the team. And the, and the person on the other end, I still don't know who that person was to this day, but must have said yes because he gave me the thumbs up. And that was kind of how I found out I made the team. And it was one of the best feelings ever. I can remember running around in the locker room like, yeah, I made it. My dream came true. And right when he got off the phone, I called my mom and dad them and told them I made it. And I was going to be sending some money home soon. So it was like a, a, one of the most joyous occasions that I can recall when it comes to basketball. So how are your memories of, of your very first game, the first time you stepped on the court for a regular season game? Oh, man, we uh, we played against the Utah Jazz. And, you know, I, when you know when I, when I found out I made it, it still was unbelievable until we traveled to Utah. And then, you know, you're kind of still wondering. And then you see your uniform in your locker. And then you're like, okay, and you put your uniform on and you run out on the court and, Man, just running out on the court for the first time, I, I set the tears well up in my eyes because this is something I had felt like I had worked so hard for. And then the next thing you know, I, I look down and I see John Stockton and Carl Malone, and I'm like, oh, I better wipe these tears away and get ready to play. And so, uh, you know, we beat Utah that night, and I had 10 points and six assists in my first NBA game. So that was one of the, you know, great memories of my my rookie NBA season because I ended up, after the ninth game, uh, I tore my ACL against Orlando, against Shaq and Penny, and I had to sit out the rest of the year. So you can imagine the roller coaster that I was on as far as finally making it and playing well, and then all of a sudden it came to a halt. And, but, you know, Coach Nelson felt like I, I had showed him I could play and told me just I just needed to get healthy and I would get another opportunity, and I'm glad he gave me that opportunity. Were you on a one-year contract at that time? Like, did you have concerns that maybe you wouldn't get a shot again in 93, 94? Yes. Yep. Everything I signed was like a, a one-year contract. So, you know, yeah, every year I had to battle with somebody else trying to come in and be the backup point guard because we knew Tim Hardaway was going to play the majority of the minutes. And, you know, I just made it my, my, my mission to turn everybody away that wanted my position and, you know, I did that until, you know, I ended up with the lockout. I ended up playing overseas and started getting a good name over there. And so then I just ended up finishing. I got with the Denver Nuggets, but I blew my knee out in the preseason. So I, I missed that whole season. And then I just finished my career overseas after that. Kevin Johnson on the move. Blocked by Weber. Oh, beautiful defensive play. Back in front to Keith Jennings. They got numbers. Three on one. Mullen. Two-point game. You did have uh, two seasons in the NBA where you played basically from start to finish. And the, your second season, the 93-94 season, that must have been an absolute blast because that Warriors team, I mean, it's too bad it didn't stick it t- together more than a year. But with Chris Mullen on board, and I just remember with, uh, you know, you still had Chris Mullen who was coming back, but Charles Freewell was, was just at the cost of becoming the, the player he was about to be, Tim Hardaway. And all your games were so high scoring and there was so much entertainment what was it like to be part of that team? Man, it was it was like you just said, man. It was just starting to come together. You know, one thing about basketball, the the experience that you gain in the game is something that is, you know is, is something that proves pivotal if you become a championship type team. And 
that first year when C Webb came and like you said, we had Chris Mullen and Tim Hardaway and Spreewell was coming into his own and we had Billy Owens and Chris Gatlin and you know, we were just you know, some young guys that was just finally now starting to understand the playoffs and you know, when we made it to the playoffs and ran into Charles Barkley, that definitely had us wondering, well, next year I think we get this more year of experience on that, how will we be? And but unfortunately, you know, C Webb got traded that next year and some injuries happened and that was a bad year that we had with the Warriors that year. But yeah, that, that year playing in the NBA playoffs was awesome, even though Charles Barkley finished us out with fifty six points. But um, you know, that was just a great learning experience and you know it was you know playing an NCAA tournament I thought that was like the greatest thing ever but then playing the NBA playoffs that that was right up there with it and actually at at the end of the uh, the following season 94-95 you were actually selected by the Toronto Raptors in the expansion draft yes um that was a great feeling you know I, I had met Isaiah Thomas when he played with the Pistons towards the end of his career. And that was like one of my favorite players that I looked up to growing up. And when I had a chance to speak to him, I walked right up to him and was like, Hey, what's up, Mr. Thomas. And he was like, man, don't call me that man. But he was like, well, you doing good, Mr. Jennings. And I was like, well, thank you, man. And the next thing you know, I'm getting a, when he retired, I'm getting a call from him telling him me with their fourth pick. And that was just uh, an awesome feeling. But, Things just didn't work out contract-wise because I think they also had Damon Stoudemire and another point guard. So it was about four of us that would have been in camp. And I just decided, you know, at that point in my career, I wanted to play more. And being a backup to Tim Hardaway, I know it wasn't happening too much there. So luckily things worked out overseas, and I was able to build my career for overseas. What was the highlight of your time overseas? I would say in France, I was uh, MVP of the league. Um, and we lost in the second round of the playoffs. But um, that year, the year before, I was coming off my ACL that I had torn when I was with Denver. So my first year in France, I was, you know, I played that year probably at like 75 to 80% as I got stronger as the year went on. And then when that season was over, I felt like once I became 100%, I was going to have a lot of success in the league in that next year. I did, and uh, like I said, I was MVP of the league from the for the coaches and the and the uh, media, and you know it, it was one of the first times that an American had had achieved that award, winning both, and it was just a really really good feeling. What in what ways would you say the the ball there was different, and then well by the same token similar to what you'd experienced in the NBA, and what did you find the caliber was like? I mean, you know, the NBA, you know, it's just the best players. You know, if you play in the NBA and you go play anywhere else, you're going to see there's going to be a little bit of a difference. And that's that's what I saw, you know, playing against like John Stockton and Jason Kidd and Kenny Anderson and uh, Kevin Johnson and Muggsy and Spud. I mean, it was a tough guard every night. But then when you played overseas, you know, playing against the European guards. Like, I actually played against Tony Parker before he came over and played with Spurs. Who um, um, else? Uh, played against Manu Ginobili over in Italy. Um, you know, it was, it was a couple of guys, but, you know, they were the talents, and their backups weren't nearly as good. So when you play against those type of players, you usually had a lot of success. Uh, but I, I would say, you know, the overseas was definitely – 
a good level of basketball. It's just, you know, in the NBA, most of the players that can can really play overseas is, is really not the same. Well, but, one thing- but not, you know, I always felt like overseas players were going to continue to get better because more, more of them were starting to play in the NBA. And then when you play in the NBA and then go back home to your home country, you start to learn things and you start to take things things back to your countrymen, which is why I think, you know, some of those teams started having some success against the Olympic teams until we started sending our uh, pros over there. And, of course, you see the influence of foreign players in the NBA now today. Yes, yes. And it's, it's going to keep coming. You know, like I said, it's a lot of talent. I always felt like it was enough talent in this world to have more than just one top league, as you can see that I don't know if you watched any of that, that million-dollar basketball tournament, but some of the, a lot of those guys can really play. And it's just unfortunate that you only have a certain amount of spots to play in the NBA because it, it definitely could be more, 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 more of a talent pool in basketball. One thing I didn't realize until I was just reading up on this, you went back to school and earned a degree. Yes. You know, that was, it was important to me, even though I wasn't the best student. Um, you know, I knew – to get into coaching and the things I wanted to try to do after playing, that was one of the things I would have to do. And, you know, I always promised my mom I would go back and finish. And uh, it was that was a great feeling, a, a nice achievement of walking across that stage at East Tennessee State. What year did you graduate? Uh, 2008. Okay, so, so you actually would have been uh, almost right around 40 years old when you were attending uh, school there. Yeah, I was like 36, 37 years old. I had just... I retired and, in '03 and got a coaching job at this private school for like three years, and then after that, I I left and went back to get my degree. So yeah, I, I felt like a a grown man walking around campus with a bunch of young. I guess they really should call you Mister. Yeah, I mean it, it it was still fun. I mean I looked like a regular student, so you would never know that a legend preceded me. <laughs> You know, that people thought so much of me there. But, you know, some of my professors who supported me as a player had now become, you know, the students who are now professors. They definitely remembered. And, you know, they helped me out as much as they could in, in those certain areas. That's really incredible, though. You, you would have been out of school for so many years, and that, that still stuck with you that you wanted to go back and accomplish that. And I, I think that says an awful lot. Would, would you, like you mentioned, getting a chance to walk across that stage, I don't know if anything compares to getting a chance to walk out onto the NBA court for the first time, but that must have been a pretty special feeling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, I have to definitely take the NBA as the, as the most special feeling. But, you know, the, the getting my degree, you know, I was, you know, the first in my family to do that. And, you know, something I had promised my mom, and she was always big on me finishing things. So, you know, I just felt like I owed it to her and myself to go back and, and take care of that. The Bobcats are under the direction of head coach Keith Jennings, assisted by Jatera Hurst. You've been in coaching now for, for many years. You're now you're now head coach of the women's program at, at Leeds McRae. What what's the path that you've taken to get to where you are now in coaching? Well, you know, it's definitely uh, um an adventure, so to speak, you know, because I, I felt like with, with what I know about the game and playing in the NBA, you know, I, I felt like I, I should be moved to the top of the class as far as maybe getting coaching opportunities. But 
it doesn't work like that. So I ended up going to an NAIA school and called Bluefield College, and I worked there for five years. <clears throat> and then when I left there, I got with Lee's McCray on the men's side and became the assistant coach. And I was there doing that for three years. And then um, the head women's coach opened up on, on at Lee's McCray, and my athletic director gave me the opportunity to run the program. And like I said, it's just great experience uh, coaching women. It's a little different, but at the same time, uh, it's, it's something that I know I can do. It's, it's good to be able to teach people. And like I said, man, I always felt a lot of respect for the coaches that made a difference in my life. And that's all I do. I want to give people an opportunity and push them to their max and try to help them become the best student athlete they can become. And after they finish, hopefully we'll have a good enough relationship where we can stay in touch with each other. Have you kept in touch with some of your coaches over the years? Yes, yes. Um, a few of my coaches uh, I, I talk to kind of frequently when I get a chance. Uh, the one I talk to the most is probably uh, was the assistant. His name is Alan LaForce. He was an assistant for the first three years, and then Coach Robinson left us to go to NC State, and Coach, Ro- Coach LaForce got the head coaching job at East Tennessee State, so I got to play for him and, then after he coached us, he ended up coaching women at Coastal Carolina. So it's always good to get great personal knowledge from a guy that has coached both of them and kind of give me the things to look for as far as coaching women. And, you know, and, and he's definitely been a, a great mentor to me. Well, I'm just thinking about this now. I mean, the, I guess the players you'd be coaching now wouldn't have even been alive when you were last playing in 1995. Do they have an appreciation? Are they familiar with the, your time with the Warriors? Like, do you ever throw on any old tapes for them or anything? I mean, every now and then I'll show them a highlight tape, and, yeah, they, they definitely are impressed. But as soon as it cuts off, then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't ask too many questions about well, who was your favorite? Where was your favorite place to play? Or who was your toughest competitor? I don't. I don't get those questions from the ladies as much as I did from the guys. Well, I'm going to bring back those questions because I always like to wrap things up with a few rapid fire questions, and I'll throw a few of those your way. I guess we'll start off with, as you mentioned there, which arena was your favorite, or even city to play in. Well, you know what? I, my favorite arena was Phoenix. And I, and it's strange. Well, let me back up. My favorite arena was Utah because we played, I played my first summer league games in Utah on their, on their court. And so when we played our first NBA game there, I felt really good playing in that arena. Um, my favorite arena was Phoenix, but I never shot well in that arena. I, I, was, I don't understand why I liked it so much when I didn't shoot that well there. And um, I would say the, my favorite place to travel was always coming back home to play. The, uh, they were the Bullets at the time because, you know, my mom and dad and my friends and family could always drive up and support me. So, you know, those three places definitely, you know, I feel good about that. And then and then Golden State also. I loved uh, the arena at Golden State and those fans there were all – I mean, they were some loyal fans even when we were struggling. They still came and supported us, so that that was always a good thing playing in front of those fans. Toughest player you had to guard? I mean, like I said, everybody was was legit. Um, I would say Muggsy, Kevin Johnson, uh, Terry DeHair, um, Jason Kidd, and 
I had to pick one more to round out that five, Gary Payton. Let's say you're on a break. Who's your favorite player to have be your finisher? I mean, um, it was a great plan with Chris Webber that one year. He had some of the best hands. I could throw it nearly anywhere, and he could catch it and finish it. Uh, but Latrell Sprewell, too, just kicking it up the court to him out on the wing and watching him finish or make his acrobatic plays was always good. And anytime I could draw and kick to Chris Mullen, I, I always felt like that was going to be an assist. <laughs> Who do you think was the most talented player that you played with? The most talented? Mm. You know, in the NBA, man, everybody's skill level is at a – is at a high level. So it's hard to say who was the most talented, but I do know that Tim Hardaway, as far as the guards go, was the most feared. <laughs> you know, I had to play against him every day in practice, and, you know, I saw that killer crossover up close and personal, and to 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 be watching him against other guards and to know they knew the crossover was coming but just didn't know how or how he was going to do it, it used to be it used to be kind of comical to me because <laughs> I know exactly what they were feeling because I would see it every day at practice. But yeah, I, I, I saw the look in 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 eye and some of those players' eyes, and they did not enjoy guarding Tim Hardaway. <laughs> Who's your uh, top three all-time little man team? Uh, I'd have to say myself, Muggsy. And Calvin Murphy. Calvin Murphy. Okay. Okay. Wow. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I mean, you wouldn't have played against Calvin Murphy, but you would have played a few games against Muggsy because I guess he would have been on in, um, yeah, in the Eastern yeah, Conference. I got to know Muggsy. Muggsy was one of the, you know, short basketball players that inspired me. So when I when we played against Charlotte for the first time, I went right up to him and told him thank you for paving the way for guys like me. And he was nothing, showed me nothing but respect. So uh, it was definitely a challenge, you know, playing against Muggs because, you know, I'm small, but he is smaller than me. And so to deal with somebody that's so fast and strong coming at you, that, that definitely was, it made me realize what, what I had made people have to deal with. <laughs> and, you know, it was definitely a challenge. Well, that went in, and it knocked. It would have counted. It would have been a goal pass, so the basket counts. Beautiful drive. Keith Jennings, very impressive with that move at 5'7". Didn't let Ewing stop him. You are tied for the third shortest player to play in the NBA in the shot clock era. You've seen what the game is, is now. Is there a better opportunity for a player on the shorter end of the scale under six feet to succeed in basketball today than it was when you were playing? You know, that's that's a great question. But I, like I said, I think anybody that's smaller, you've got to be special. You know, I, I think the things that I did, like I said, I, I shot the ball really well. I could pass the ball really well. Um, I was strong, so you just couldn't just bully me unless you just, you know, like I said, if you six eight and – 240 pounds, yeah, you're going to be able to post me up kind of easy. But for the most part, man, I think, you know, I don't see a lot of small guards playing in the NBA these days. So I don't, I won't, I won't say that the small guard is phased out, but at the same time, the ones that are in there, 
you know, I think the small guards now go at like five eleven, six foot. I don't think it's going to be too many more five five. I'm, I'm sure they're out there though, and they should be getting the opportunity. But I, I just haven't seen it here recently. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. The shared memories, and, and you were someone that I certainly admired growing up. So this has been a very cool experience for me to get to talk to you. And uh, I wish you all the best, and, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. I appreciate you, man. Stay safe, and I uh, wish you the best. Jennings with three, with two, will put it up. Oh, my goodness. Five foot seven, Pete, Mr. Jennings. You've got to love it. And here's a fun fact for those of you from my neck of the woods in Edmonton, Alberta. Sherwood Park's Stephanie Cousy has committed to Lees McRae to play women's basketball beginning with the next season. So I want to wish her the best of luck, and we'll definitely be cheering for her and Coach Jennings down there in Banner Elk, North Carolina. That will do it. A reminder, you can catch all episodes of the 90s Basketball Show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and tsn1260.ca. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to be like Alonzo Morning circa 1998 and wear a mask, and we'll catch you again next time on the 90s Basketball Show.